one of the telltale signs of that a that a novel or a movie is poorly written is that it's full of holes in the storyline of the plot. Um, there are these illogical gaps and inconsistencies in the storyline, or there are statements, events that happen later in the movie or the book that contradict things that uh, were said or done earlier in the story. Some of these uh, are blatant and very obvious. Uh, There's a particular channel on television that shows movies this time of year that has many of these plot holes. I won't name names, but uh, I'll hear about this later Uh, (laughs) for my wife and daughter. Others, others are more subtle, and you have to really be paying attention to, to notice these. There are whole websites and there are YouTube channels devoted to picking apart books and, and movies to, to point out these uh, holes in, in plots. But if you think about it, it would be virtually impossible to, to create a story that's void of any of these you know, plot holes. You have so many details with so many characters and events and timing and you have to keep all that, you've got to keep up with all of that and, and tie it together so there aren't contradictions, there aren't inconsistencies, there aren't gaps. That would, that would be impossible, uh, virtually impossible. The most brilliant writers, however, they have this ability to, to, to see an entire consistent story from this bird's eye vantage point. And before they hit the first stroke on the keyboard, they have, they see this cohesive story in their mind. And, and it's just a matter of telling it then, this detailed story. And so that, this, this ability to see it all, though, it allows them to, to plan everything in the story from all these different angles and, and come at it without, again, without blatant contradictions and inconsistencies. And then you get to the end of a, a great, movie or or novel like that and and you often say wow i did not see that coming that's that's that what a perfect ending and and so everything comes together you see how all these different little story threads and these details they they come together and they're woven together and and you're just like wow that's great but even the most brilliant writers human writers they they can't completely avoid those inconsistencies and those holes and their plots. They can't keep track of every detail in a 200-page novel or a 110-minute film. But listen, God, He is the master storyteller and story writer. He, 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 doesn't, he doesn't just fabricate details of make-believe characters and, 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 and to fit them into this fictional narrative. That's not what He does. He's written the true story of all human history. And there's, there are zero plot holes in his story. There are no inconsistencies, no, no gaps, no illogical, no, no mistakes, no pointless dangling plot lines that just hang out there and we think, how in the world does that fit? None of that. It is this consistent, cohesive, linear story that we ourselves are part of. This is, we're preaching this little mini-series on, uh, we call it Act 2, because we've, we've, we spent a couple of years in the Gospel of John, and, 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 the, 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 and the book of Acts begins saying this, that he's, in, in Luke's talking about in his Gospel account, he wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach, and this is what we saw in John's Gospel. But in, in the book of Acts, we get to see what Jesus continued to do and teach through the apostles by the Holy Spirit. And, and so, but what I want you to see, there are no contradictions between the two acts. <laughs> there, 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 are, there are no holes in the plot. There is one consistent story that God has written. And, and it's way before uh, the book of Acts, but before the foundation of the world, we're in, and we're in it. He see, God sees the end from the beginning. From before there was a beginning of, of anything of earth. He has this omniscient mind, in his omniscient mind, this entire cohesive, consistent plot, storyline. What a God. You know, I often I'll joke with uh, my kids and say sarcastically, after I've made 
several mistakes in a row or something. Maybe I'm driving and I've made my fifth or sixth U-turn trying to find out where we're going or I have something to, some, something to help you know, them assemble and we, we put it together for the fourth or fifth time and they're still missing parts and I have no idea what they're for. I'll, I'll say something like, everything your dad does is, is according to plan. I, you know, I got it under control and, of course, they see right through that. Um, that's, there's no truth to that statement. But listen, everything... Our Heavenly Father does is according to plan. There are no mistakes. There are no leftover pieces that just are pointless. It's all part of a story that he has written. And this morning we're, we're going to see this truth, and do it, but it's not going to be in some dense doctrinal letter by the Apostle Paul. It's not going to be in, in a theological lecture. It's going to be, of all things, in this spontaneous evangelistic appeal. By, the, by, by Peter. And so the ESV heading in my Bible, the, the heading over this section, it says Peter's sermon at Pentecost. Now I know when we think sermons, maybe you, you think this right here, what we're doing here. But, but don't picture a group of people in a building sitting in rows of chairs, uh, listening to a prepared message from an open Bible and on a podium or something like that. That's not, that's not the scene. This is impromptu Street preaching, if it's anything. This it starts with Peter responding to an accusation that he and the other disciples are inebriated. <laughs> That's not how my sermon is beginning today. That's not why I'm preaching. I'm trying to dispel rumors that your pastor is drunk. Um, but, but Peter takes this occasion filled with the Holy Spirit of God that's just come that dwelt him and these other disciples, and they're filled with the Spirit. And he stands and he boldly proclaims Jesus as Messiah and Lord in the same city with the same people that just recently mocked, maimed, and murdered Jesus Christ. And so within, and within just few, a few minutes of starting this appeal, 3,000 souls, 3,000 people trust in Christ and are born again to salvation and the church is born with a bang. It's incredible. And it, it, it looked like Jesus was doomed just a few weeks, months earlier. It looked like death won. It looked like this little Jesus movement had, had dwindled and came to nothing and was just going to fade away as a little footnote in history. But... In reality, what we see here is all was going according to plan. There were no mistakes. Everything that had happened, everything that was happening, was happening so that these people, in verse 36, might know for certain that God had made Him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Everything's moving to that point. And so, I just want to... That wants to see that consistency, and that's kind of part of the reason we're in these first two chapters of Acts, is to see this story that God has, was writing and through the Gospel of John. It did not stop. And this is God's story, and it will come to completion. And so I want to just see what, what God is doing, what's, what He's planned, and what's coming to fruition here. So the first thing I want us to see is that the Spirit was poured out according to God's plan. Last time we were in Acts, a couple weeks ago, on the day of Pentecost, when the disciples were gathered together in the upper room of that, of that house, and 120 disciples gathered together, the Spirit came just as Jesus said He would. Not many days from now, you're going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit, and so it was the case. There was that, <coughs> that audible evidence that the Spirit came, and the sound of the mighty rushing wind. There, were the, there was the visible evidence of the of the tongues that were like flames of fire that rested on all of those disciples in that room. There was the oral evidence as people, as those disciples filled with the Holy Spirit began to speak in other languages that they had never studied before. And, and so all this is happening and it draws the attention of these crowds in Jerusalem, all these pilgrims there for the Feast of Pentecost and the residents of Jerusalem that always lived there. And so they're, they're trying to figure out what's going on with this noises and what's happening. And so they're moving towards the house where the disciples are gathered and as the, these disciples now 
indwelled by and filled with the Holy Spirit, speaking in tongues, they start going out of the house and filing into the streets. And the crowds meet the disciples. And all these people from all over the known world are hearing their languages, their native languages spoken with perfect dialects by these simple Galileans. And they're trying to figure out what's going on. And so curiosity and confusion just reigns. And this is their response. They're they're perplexed. They're confused. And and they're also mocking them. Verse 12. Look back at verse 12 of Acts 2. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? How how, how do we explain this? What's this a sign of? It's got to be a sign of something. But others mocking said, They are filled with new wine. And so that's... That's the accusation for which we started here in verse 14. And then Peter begins. But Peter, the unofficial spokesman of the the apostles here, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. Now, first of all, we're thinking, is this the same Peter? This doesn't sound like Peter. Is this, is this the same one who, who cowered in fear before these same people not many days ago and has kind of been locked in an upper room? And, and this, is, this is different. What's made the difference? It's the Spirit. This is, he, says, he says this, and then he says, verse 15, For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. It's, it's only 9 a.m., <laughs> And, and you, you think we're already intoxicated. That's not the case. That was unheard of for people to be drunk that part of the day, particularly for a feast like this and Pentecost. And it's not common today. I know, realize you could probably have known people that you've seen drunk at this time of day, but that's not normal. And certainly for a group of people like this, Peter, Peter says these, these, these strange happenings that you're trying to make sense of and you're asking what does this mean and you're, you're confused and you're perplexed about. The answer, uh, or, or what you're looking for, you think it's connected to wine, but it's not. It's connected to Scripture. The, 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 this is, this, all these things that are happening, it can't be explained by that. He so says, verse 16, but this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. This isn't the result of alcoholic inebriation. This is the result of prophetic fulfillment. That's what he's saying. And then he goes on to quote with a few minor variations from the prophet Joel. Joel chapter 2, verse 28 to 32. And as we'll see in just a moment, he's going to cite uh, Psalm 16 and Psalm 110 as well. Now, he didn't have a, he didn't have a a bound Bible with him or even the Old Testament. He didn't, he didn't have that, that Books hadn't been invented by this point. He didn't have a, a, a scroll underneath his robe that he pulled out and unrolled and, and started reciting these verses and reading these verses. No, he, he had these in his mind. They were recited from memory here. It's probably passages, perhaps, that Jesus had taught, uh, taught them and explained to them and showed connections over those 40 days after Jesus resurrected before his ascension. But, but so, so... So, but, but what Peter's point is, he's connecting, he's making sense with Scripture, explaining to these people. Now, before we look at the quote itself from Joel 2, we, we need to understand what he's doing here. Um, his use of Joel is, is, is right in line with a type of Hebrew teaching called a pesher. That's not a word you hear often, but we, we, we learned about peshers from the Dead Sea Scrolls archaeological dig many years ago that was uncovered, and we, we have all these examples of how the Old Testament's interpreted. And this is what we have. Let me just give you an explanation from the Expositor's Bible Commentary. What, what this means is that it, it lays all emphasis on fulfillment without attempting to exegete the details of the biblical prophecy it interprets. And so that's Peter's focus, and this is what I mean. You'll see Peter, he never shows how, as we'll see in Joel 2 in this passage, how prophecy and visions and dreams of Joel 2, how that connects with tongues, speaking in tongues that we see in Pentecost. He's not so concerned about the form of the outpouring of the Spirit. I'm not saying the details don't matter, but that's not his, that's not his emphasis. What he's concerned about in his point is that the Holy Spirit was poured out on all flesh. That's his focus. So verse 17. And in the last days, quoting Joel, in the last days God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. 
And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions. And your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. And so the spirit was poured out according to plan on all kinds of people. Not just uh, religious leaders, not just priests, not just rabbis, but, but even sons and daughters would experience this outpouring. Not just older men, but younger men. Not just the wealthy, but, but even slaves would know the fullness of the Spirit. Not just men, but women would be filled with the Spirit. And so, you, you, you know, in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit did come and He empowered uh, people for ministry. And He came on people at certain times and certain people. And so you have the craftsmen who built the tabernacle. And, and Moses and Joshua and Gideon and Jephthah and, and Samson and Samuel and Saul and David and others. All these people empowered by God to do his will for a certain time but starting at Pentecost there's this radical change now you have normal everyday garden variety believers born again and and dwelt by and filled with the Holy Spirit spirit is poured out on all flesh Paul says it like this for one For in one spirit we were all baptized in one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, all were made to drink of one spirit. And this outpouring of the spirit on all kinds of people, and this is my point, it's happening according to plan. It's just as God said it would happen. He said it would happen this way in the scriptures. And then Peter keeps on quoting Joel and he shows that the outpouring of the spirit would be followed by this time of terrible judgment and 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 so he and this is where he begins i mean he starts he meets the people where they're at they're trying to figure out all this commotion and all this noise and this these tongues that are being spoken and is this drunkenness what do we what can we attribute all of this strange bizarre happenings to so he meets them where we're at, they're at and he answers their curiosity with scripture but then he, then he moves them. And this is where he really gets into the, his evangelistic appeal here. And he's, 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 he's uh, pushing them. And he, he keeps going in Joel. And he says in verse 19, And I will show wonders in the heavens, again, quoting Joel, above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. Now Peter didn't know when these judgments would take place, but he knew that they would happen after the Spirit was poured out, according to the Scriptures. So he's not saying they're being fulfilled on this day, on the day of Pentecost, but he is saying that these things will happen after the Spirit's poured out and before the great and magnificent day of the Lord. And so since, since the prophecy in Joel has begun to be fulfilled with the Spirit being poured out, it's reasonable to assume that, 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 that the rest will come to pass in, in due time. And so that's, that's his point. Well, we know that ju- these judgments still have yet to come to pass. We're still in, those, in that last days, the time from Christ's crucifixion and resurrection until his return. But in Revelation 6.12, John, the Apostle John writes about these same signs with the, when the Lamb breaks open the sixth seal during the Great Tribulation. So there, there, there will be complete and literal fulfillment of these promises of judgment in the future. They're certain. And it has come after the Spirit is poured out. But this is Peter's point. The outpouring of the Spirit predicted by the prophet Joel, it has happened. So don't expect God's judgment predicted in the same passage to be far behind. Be prepared. He's setting them up. He's saying, be warned. Be ready. Judgment is certain. And then he says, and this is, he's still quoting Joel. This is what the prophet Joel spoke. And, and Peter now offers this wonderful news in light of this certainty of judgment that's coming. He says, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Amen. What mercy. To, to, those undeserved, to those deserving of His judgment, God offers a means of escape. Whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And that offer of mercy still stands today, friends. 
If you, if you are not prepared to, for, the, for the judgment that is certain, that will come, God has made this very clear in His Word. You can be prepared. You can be covered. You can be protected. You can, you can escape that judgment by calling upon the name of the Lord and being saved today. And we'll see. He's going to go on and explain more what that means, and we'll look at that together. Second thing that we see happening according to plan is that the son suffered, died, and rose again according to God's plan. Verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. So Jesus' miracles, they're God's way of verifying Jesus' claims. I mean, this is... This is what we, we, most people like Nicodemus, remember this, where they, they acknowledged John 3, 2, no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So those signs, those miracles that, that these people in the crowds, many of them observed, they saw Jesus do these things, testified to God, to, to who Jesus is. Verse 23, this Jesus, the same one, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Now he's, he's stomping on some toes here. And he's pointing his finger, putting it in their chest, saying, you crucified and you killed your Messiah. You, 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 the, the Jews represented by the Jewish leaders, you, and, and, the, and the, the lawless men, they did it at the hands of lawless men, probably the Gentiles, what he has in mind. So Jews and Gentiles both implicated in Jesus' death. But even so, the other thing we see is, is their evil deeds are all under the umbrella of God's sovereign plan. His eternal decree. The crucifixion of Jesus was not simply some unfortunate event. It was God's it was in God's definite plan, his set purpose. It was God's predetermined will, not some reactionary response. Okay, well now what are we going to do? That was not it. It was all part of the plan. Isaiah 53:10, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. So Jesus was not simply the passive victim of his enemies. He laid down his life willingly and was crucified and died by divine necessity. So it was the predetermined will of God, and yet it was the hands of, of wicked men, and they're the ones who crucified him. Now, do you have that all sorted out in your mind? <laughs> Jesus died according to God's eternal plan from the, before the foundation of the world, and yet those evil men are responsible for the crime. If you, if you still have questions about that, just see Pastor Flintoff. He sorted all this out with the youth on Wednesday night as they talked about God's sovereignty in the midst of evil. But God wasn't only involved in Jesus' death. That was not the only thing that happened according to plan. But his resurrection from the dead was also according to plan. And Luke spends, he spends one verse on Jesus, or we could say Peter. He, one, one verse on uh, Jesus' life, the miracles. One verse on Jesus' death. And then he spends nine verses, as it is in our English Bibles, on the resurrection. So the resurrection... Jesus from the dead, it, it became and was the very core of the apostolic message, and it should be the core of what we proclaim too. This is why we gather on the Lord's day to proclaim Christ is risen, first day of the week. Verse 23, again, you crucified and you killed Jesus by the hands of lawless men, but God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. So he's saying, you, and, and what he's doing, he's really strongly implicating them here. You, the very one that God wanted to live, you killed. You who think you're on God's side, you're the keepers of the law and, and, the, and the, the ones of the, the people of the covenant and you're, you're the ones who, who are holding on to God's promises. But when God sent his own son and his Messiah to this earth, you killed him. But God raised him. You're against God. This is what he's saying. Not in a not so subtle way for their ears. 
God raised him, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And this, this event, this resurrection is the event that changed everything. And it wasn't just some freak natural phenomenon. This was God's doing. It was according to plan. It was impossible, the text says, for Jesus to remain in the grave. It was impossible. Because of God's power over sin and death. Because of God's promise that He would, we would raise Christ from the dead. Because of God's eternal purpose for Jesus to be killed and, and to be alive again so that, so that we, His people, could have life in His name. So it was all, it was, it was all that made His keeping Him in the grave an impossibility. Okay, so, and then Peter cites Psalm 16. Four verses from Psalm 16 that show this is not, again, a, some strange, surprising turn of events. This is God's plan all along. He said this would happen. Verse 25, For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand and I, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Now what is, what is David talking about? Is David talking about himself here? That's probably how most of these Jewish hearers would have thought though. But, but does David's hand fit the glove of this prophecy? Well, Peter says, absolutely not. There's no question. And, and if, you're, if you're honest, you would have to say the same. Look at verse 29. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us today. You want to take a little field trip to cross, cross through the city of Jerusalem here and let me go see David's tomb. And do any of you doubt that his bones are in that grave? That his body rotted and decayed in that grave? And somebody would say, no, I, I can't deny that. And, and, and so, in other words, David's body did die and it did see corruption. So verse 30, being therefore a prophet, it's, it's calling David a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with, with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did, he, nor did his flesh see corruption. So as a prophet, David, David was speaking about this promised descendant who would sit on his throne, and he was looking ahead. Now, to what extent David realized this, we, we don't know. But he's speaking about the resurrection of Christ in that psalm. And then Peter says confidently, verse 32, look there with me. This Jesus, this Jesus, the one you saw work miracles, the one that you killed, the one that God raised, this Jesus God raised up. And of this we are all witnesses. And I picture the 11 other apostles and the other disciples saying, Amen! Preach it! And they're nodding in agreement. Yes. Jesus lived, He died, he rose again according to plan, but that's not all. Jesus ascended according to plan. Verse, 35, verse 33, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. Again, this is the same one that you killed and you crucified and you, and you mocked and you arrested and you, and you tortured and you unjustly killed. This is the same one he is now exalted at the right hand of God. And having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit confirmation, He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. You want, he's, God is giving His statement upon what has happened and who Jesus is. And it's through His tongue speaking. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord, Yahweh, said to my Lord Christ, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So he's quoting... Psalm 110, verse 1 here. And since David's not seated again, David's not seated at God's right hand. He must be Messiah. And then Peter brings the, 
the punchline in verse 36, where we started reading earlier. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, Messiah, this Jesus whom you crucified. This Jesus. Jesus is Messiah. Jesus is Yahweh, is Lord. There could not be a stronger affirmation of Christ's deity before these people. You just say, brothers and sisters, fellow believers, take heart that your hope in Christ is not in vain. Your hope is not, our hope is not in a man-made religion that's full of holes and inconsistencies. Our hope is not, we haven't given our lives for a system of morality. We don't trust in a book that's full of errors and gaps. We know for certain that God has made Jesus, the one who was crucified and risen again, He has made Him both Lord and Christ. It has is, it is, it is all happened according to plan. There are no plot holes in this story. It's not like any other religion. Our confidence is well-grounded. And if your confidence is not in Jesus Christ and in the truth that we find in Scripture that reveals Christ, I beg you to consider the claims that we've just considered here today. God has made him both Christ, Messiah, our only hope, and Lord. And so what does that mean then? I mean, just... Take your, we know what's coming next. We just read it a moment ago, and you knew it before you walked in here this morning. If you've, if you've been a Christian and have studied the Bible for any length of time, you, you know this passage, and you know what's coming. But what was going through Peter's mind and the, other, and the minds of the other disciples as, those, as, that, as verse 36, as we know it in our Bibles, as it rolled off of his lips? What, was it, what were they thinking? Did, did they wonder... This is probably the day of our death. With the same city that just a few weeks ago crucified their Savior publicly and violently for saying these kinds of things, would would that happen to them now? There's already a mob assembled. This is not going to be difficult. And so would they turn on Peter and the apostles and these other disciples so just, again, we, we take it for granted. We know what's coming, but they didn't know that. And here's Peter, filled with God's Spirit, boldly proclaiming Christ, the one that they've killed as Lord and as Messiah. And that brings us to the third statement. It didn't turn out that way. There was no uprising. There was a great turning of hearts to God. And the church was born according to God's plan. And salvation came according to God's plan. Verse 37, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the, the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? What shall we do? They're cut to the heart. It, that word just means to strike violently, to, to, to stun I mean, the convicting work of the Holy Spirit on the hearts of these hearers is, is sudden and it's enormous. And their hearts cut, pierced. The, the, the Holy Spirit took God's word spoken by the Apostle Peter and used it to just bring great conviction on the hearts of his listeners. This is, this is what he still does. Through his word, Hebrews 4.12, the word of God is living and it's active and it's sharper than any two-edged sword piercing the division of soul and spirit of joints and a marrow and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And this this word of God that, that pierces like that, it is, as Paul says in Ephesians 6, it's the sword of the spirit. It wasn't Peter's sword that he's out there wielding on that day. And here, let me show you. There's, it's not Peter's powers of persuasion that are behind this and bringing conviction of, of heart and, and cutting them to the heart. No, it's the Holy Spirit who's working as the gospel is proclaimed. And he's bringing great convictions. The victory is the Lord's. 
And that's what's, that's what's needed every time the word is preached. And I, I, I try to be consciously mindful of that as even as we're singing down here, I'm praying, Lord, it's gotta be you, your spirit's gotta work. I cannot do this. And this is not just true in preaching in a public way, but this is true for you as you, as you communicate with your kids, as you, as you give witness to the lost in the, in this community, in your family, as you'll be doing that over the next several weeks, you need the spirit of God to work. We're dependent upon him. We're not able to, to twist and, to, and to, to, through our powers of persuasion, our golden mouths, to be able to do, work any eternal good. We need God. So they're cut to the heart. And then, they're, and then the question they ask, it has this, this ring of desperation to, what do we do? There's this enormous conviction and guilt. We killed and we crucified our Messiah. Now what do we do? How do we, how do we possibly make this right? We stand in opposition against the holy God that we've professed our whole lives and now we, we find out we are, we are not with Him. We are against Him. What do I do? And then Peter gives the application. Verse 38. And Peter said to them, Repent. And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, praise God, that's us. For everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. I I downloaded and John Piper's message sermon on this text. It was years ago, and he makes the point. And when someone says, "Ask a question like this, what must I do?" Behind that question is a clear sense of need, a felt need. They're saying, "I need something, and I don't know how to get it." And 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 in telling them what to do, Peter also explains what they need and what do they need. He says two things: they need forgiveness of sins. What they, and what they desperately needed is what God in His amazing grace was ready to give. He, it was forgiveness. They had sinned against God. They had killed God's Messiah. They had transgressed God's law. They had, they had ignored God's promises. They had offended the Holy Lord. There was only one hope that God might forgive their sin. That was their need. And the other need they had was the gift of the Holy Spirit. They needed God Himself to come into their lives and, and dwell with them and be in relationship with them, personal relationship with them through the Spirit. And that's what they need. It is the same thing every person born today needs. We are all born sinners in need of God's forgiveness. And we are all born separated from God in need of a relationship with Him through God's Holy Spirit. That's every, that's true for everyone born today. But this is the wonderful hope. Even if you are a murderer, a, a murderer of God's only son as these people were, and as we are, God stands ready to forgive you. And not only to forgive you, but to give you his Holy Spirit to dwell in you. He's willing to cancel all your sin debts. All of it. He doesn't hold a little bit back just to hang over your head. No, he wipes it out, white as snow. If you turn to him and trust in his son, he forgives all your sin. And not only that, he comes and he lives with you. And he indwells you and he guides you and he helps you and he comforts you and he, and he prays for you and he protects you and he grows you and he preserves you and he keeps you and he empowers you. So how do we, that's what we need. We need forgiveness. We need the Spirit. How do we get that? The first thing Peter says, they needed to repent. And repent. Not just regret, not just to feel sorry. They had already been cut to the heart. Repent means to turn. It's a change of mind, change of heart to reverse the direction of your life. It's obviously it, it results in a change of conduct, but the emphasis is on it's on the mind, it's on the outlook. 
Change your heart and your mind so that you're no longer against Christ. That's what he's saying here in this context. These Jews who had rejected Jesus as their Messiah and as their Lord and they wanted nothing to do with Him and they killed Him and they crucified Him. They need to do a 180 now and receive Him as their Messiah and Lord and trust in Him alone. That's what he's saying to them. And then he says they needed to be baptized. Be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now what what does that mean? <laughs> Are we forgiven on the basis of our baptism? I we have I have had good friends who've believed just that thing. I we went to Brooke and I went to college and, and, and met and married in Abilene, Texas. We were at a Baptist college, Hardin Simmons University. But the bigger university in town was Abilene Christian University, which is one of the largest Church of Christ universities. And some of you may come from a Church of Christ background. Some of you may be in the Church of Christ and you're visiting today. Um, but Church of Christ, by their doctrine, they, they say that baptism is, is the means. It is, it, we're forgiven on the basis of repentance and baptism. And I had many debates uh, sitting in the basement of University Baptist Church in Abilene, Texas, which is now Walmart. Um, many debates in that basement about uh, the meaning of this verse right here. And I got into some hot water with uh, the university, Abilene Christian University, and was kicked off the campus. I couldn't visit students for lunch anymore because of uh, the, my attempts to influence students over there on this campus. That um, this is one of the passages that frequently came up. Uh, and so are we saved by baptism? Is that what Peter is saying to this crowd? The problem with saying that is there are so many other places. One problem with saying that is there are so many other places in Scripture where forgiveness of sins is based upon faith alone. I mean, John 3.16, John 3.36, Romans 4. Uh, Romans eleven six, Galatians three eight nine, Ephesians two eight nine, and we could go on and on and on. Even in the book of Acts, Peter himself declares over and over again that forgiveness of sins is based upon faith alone, with no mention of baptism in many other places in Acts. Five thirty one, ten forty three, thirteen thirty eight, twenty six eighteen. So so if so, I just say that's. I don't think that's what Peter's saying, and I'm not going to going to elaborate any more on that. I, that, that salvation is based on, on repentance and, and baptism. What is he saying then? Well, there's a couple options. He could be saying that, he, that, that we're, we're to be baptized on the basis of our forgiveness of sins. Or on account of. So, be baptized on account of or for because you've, your sins have been forgiven. That, that very well may be what Peter is saying here. And the, and the preposition, it can be used that way. And it's used elsewhere in the New Testament that way. There are other passages where this is... It's not the normal meaning of this preposition. And the normal construction would tend to be uh, used... This, this construction grammatically would be used to, to emphasize purpose. But it could be that. The other option is that this phrase, and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, it might be parenthetical. Now this is... It's a little diff- different, difficult to see in the English because we, well, and, and in the Greek because there aren't the punctuation marks like we have in in English writing. Um, but but so you could put that in parentheses, and the sentence, the basic sentence reads: "Repent for the forgiveness of your sins." Uh, um, and and the bab- the part about baptizing in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ is parenthetical. Now, why would I say that? It seems like you're kind of reaching there, Justin. Um, but there are reasons. And, it, and again, this is where it's a little difficult to see in the English, and I'm not trying to confuse you and say, well, you're, what's the point reading the English Bible? We can't see what God's Word says. Not at all. That's not it. But there are things that you can see in the original language here. There are differences in singular, plural nouns, verbs here. So the verb repent is plural, and so is the pronoun your in that phrase for the forgiveness of your sins. So the verb repent seems to go with the purpose of forgiveness of sins. They're both plural uh, um, verb noun or verb pronoun. On the other hand, the imperative be baptized is singular. And it seems to be setting it apart from the rest of that sentence. So on that grounds, it might be that this is a parenthetical statement and setting it apart from the other. All right. 
I'm going to move on. You can, can work with that. But the other thing I want you to see in, this, in, in these verses here is you, you have this human and divine side of salvation put together. We must repent. We must believe. And yet everyone who does that has been called by the Lord. Verse 39. Oh, look, look at it again. Let me find the verse. And this, this promises for you and your children, for all who are far, far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Salvation is according to God's plan. Verse 40. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them. We don't have the whole sermon here. All we, all we have is an excerpt. We don't know how long he preached. I'm sure it was longer than me, so just you know, calm down. Um, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. Verse 41, so those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Now again, could Peter and the others possibly have expected that outcome when they left that house that morning and met that mob of people coming to them? Do you think this is what, I bet this is about to go down, I bet it's about to happen. I don't think so. From this group of huddled, frightened scared disciples in this upper room with the doors locked and the window shades pulled to a growing church of 3,000 plus new believers in just a matter of minutes. It's crazy. The beginning of the church on that day and the existence of the church in the present day, it cannot be explained simply sociologically, though people try to do that. It can only be explained soteriologically. Salvation is of the Lord. This is according to His plan. The church is born according to God's plan, not man's strategy. And the church continues to grow according to God's plan. He's still working. He's still growing His church. He's still building His church. He's still calling His sheep. He's still sending us out. It's it's God's doing. It's God's Spirit that made the difference on that day. It's God's Spirit that continues to make the difference today. This is why we desperately need to be people filled with God's Spirit so we speak the Word with boldness and that His Spirit brings deep conviction on hearts and causes people to be born again. Listen, we're, we're, we're part of this story that is written by our master storyteller with no dangling plot lines, no inconsistencies, no gaps, no plot holes. And again, it's not just true in this part of the story that we're looking at in in Acts 1 and 2. It's just true today where you and I fit. Everything that happens is according to plan. Not in a way that eliminates our wills. Not in a way that that, uh, invalidates choice. Not in a way that minimizes the reality of evil and wicked deeds. But God is, God is working his purpose. He is sovereign. Now, what practical difference should that make in, in our lives, just everyday life for the believers? Let me just give you a few. And it's just a, just a few. There could be many more. One thing is we really understand that our worries begin to weaken. Our worries begin to weaken. It doesn't, make the, doesn't mean that our problems and our pains are, go away and that, that they just become pretend. No, it do, but it does take the teeth out of fear and worries. No matter what you're going through or what, you, what you're afraid might happen tomorrow or what you're afraid you might go through one day or, or that you might have to walk through, we can rest in the fact that God is actually able to work all things for our good, even when we don't see how that can happen. Another area that this touches on is that our decision-making isn't so daunting. When we recognize that God is in control, we won't be so paralyzed by decisions we have to make. I don't mean we just let go and let God and and don't think and plan and pray and get counsel. That's not it. We don't just sit, sit idly by and just kind of watch things unfold and just refuse to make decisions. That's not my point. But But if we make, quote, if we feel like we've made the wrong decision, all is not lost. God is over Even that, we can trust in God's faithfulness and His ability to direct our steps even when we mess up. 
We can bravely go into life, life that's often confusing and and full of difficulty. We can go into that trusting that our loving father and master story writer has this bird's eye view and he sees the end from the beginning and he's he's working his, his will and accomplishing his purpose in us and through us. Third, our salvation is secure. When we understand how powerful God is, how much He loves us, we can know that we are secure in Him. We don't need to fear ultimate failure or, or, or final destruction because of this reality. This is what Romans 8 makes so crystal clear for us. Fourth, our growth is guaranteed. Our growth is guaranteed. We can trust God's sanctifying work in us. Doesn't mean it's easy, doesn't mean it's quick, doesn't mean it's painless, but and, and doesn't mean we have no role to play in our growth and maturity. No, we have we are called to obedience. What we do, what we say, what we think, how we live, it matters. But we also trust our story writing God to bring us to maturity. That the one who began a good work in us will be faithful to complete it. Romans 8, again, Romans 8, 29 and 34. Salvation has been God's plan from eternity past and He's going to bring us to glory. So rather than focusing on our own performance or our lack of performance, what do we do? We rest on the character of our God and we focus instead on actually getting to know the Lord who is keeping us, growing in Him. I'm going to add one that's not on the screen, but... It also means God's promises are permanent. That all of those assurances, all those promises that God's made, I will never leave you nor forsake you. No temptation is common to man. I'll I'll be with you. All those promises, I'll preserve you, I'll keep you. They're all all permanent because God, God is the story writer. I'm going to ask the team to come on up and we're going to to sing. Uh, Again, when it seemed like when it seemed like all was lost, if there's ever a moment when, when hell rejoiced and the demons and the devil thought they had won, they had, they had thwarted God's plan, they had found the plot hole. They, 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 the, the story, that it was broken. There was an illogical inconsistency. There's no way that you can reconcile the cross with God's redemptive plan. They thought they had won. Darkness thought it had triumphed over the Son of God. But... God's plans were not thwarted. Death was arrested. Christ was risen again from the dead. So let me, let me pray and then we'll sing to the Lord together. Father, we thank you that everything that happened in, in Jesus' life, death, resurrection, ascension, it was all according to plan. And we thank you that everything in our lives, God, is happening according to this master story that you have written. And God, that gives us great help and hope. In, in this world that's so confusing at times. And so we thank you, Father, that as we're going to sing, that, that though darkness rejoiced at our Savior as he was hung on this criminal's cross, and it seemed like heaven had lost, but we thank you that, Jesus, you rose with our freedom in hand, and death was arrested and our life began. Lord, we sing of your victory now together in Jesus' name. Amen.